You ever walk into the middle of a movie? You see action on the screen, but you don't know the context? Well, that's what I'm going to do to you right now. Let's jump right into the action. Then Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored. Healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. What kind of movie is this? Might sound like fiction, but it's not. But a couple things probably sound like fiction. One is this healing. Man stretches out his hand and this guy Jesus heals him. I don't hear this as much as I did in the last century when I began my life. But this idea every once in a while I hear it that miracles are impossible. And I hope you can see through that. That statement assumes that God does not exist. But God, if God does exist, and he does, then miracles are possible. God can intervene whenever he wants. It might be rare. And it certainly will be extraordinary. But anyone who says miracles are not possible, believe me, they're just blowing smoke. Second thing that sounded maybe unbelievable to you is if we did have a healer, why would people conspire to destroy him? Wouldn't people all be happy to have a healer? But not so. Not if the healer threatens the status and control and popularity of a group of people in power. Unfortunately, this is the real world. Okay, let's unpause the movie and keep going. What's next? Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there and many followed him. And he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. All right, so you see what happened there. They want to destroy him. And what is this guy, Jesus' response? He withdraws. He goes somewhere else. And then he heals a bunch of people. And then here's the interesting part, if that's not already interesting. He orders them not to tell others about him. So he's not just avoiding conflict. He's also avoiding the limelight. He's intentionally reducing his publicity. It's an anti-PR campaign. And then we're told, as I just read, that this is why? Because some prophet centuries earlier predicted it. This prophet Isaiah. And if we unpause the movie, we will hear now, 
as Matthew, who's, who I'm reading here, Matthew will quote what that prophet Isaiah said. Here it is. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Until he brings justice to victory. This man Jesus is called God's servant. Whom God is pleased with. And God puts his spirit upon him. Which I guess explains the miraculous healings. But why the secrecy? Why the withdrawal from conflict and the limelight? Why, why healings and not immediate conquest? Because this is what Isaiah predicted when he said, and here's the key part. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench. So let me describe the hero Of this movie in three phrases. He offers no aggression. He holds no rallies. And he engages in no self-promotion. No aggression. No rallies. No self-promotion. I hope you consider that admirable. Compelling. Beautiful. Again, though, it might seem fictional. One last thing. Because Isaiah said in the same verse that he will bring justice to victory. Justice. Now, there's a lot to be said about justice in this extended passage from Isaiah, which we'll see in a moment, including, get this, worldwide justice. Now, I ask you, how can a man who withdraws Achieve this. He's going to have to go public. Worldwide justice is a public thing. A global thing. And no aggression. No rallying people in the streets. No networking and self-promotion. He's going to need these things, right? That's how the world works. And that's why Isaiah's prophecy is there. No. He doesn't need these things. Not this man. Well, let's turn to that full prophecy, Isaiah chapter 42, which Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, just quoted in part in Matthew chapter 12. But let's turn to Isaiah 42 and read all nine verses in full. This is a prophecy we call the first servant song of Isaiah. There are four servant songs about Jesus. This is the first of the fourth. You're able to stand. Will you stand for the reading of God's word? Hear this wonderful song written so long ago. Isaiah 42, starting at verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. 
I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and his spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, from those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. You may be seated. Now, instead of walking through this verse by verse, I, with the time I have, I want to highlight three words you heard in that passage. Three themes. First, servant. Second, justice. And third, covenant. And especially that last one will lead us to the table here as we take communion in a bit. Servant, justice, and covenant. Let's start with servant. Did you hear that in the first verse? And this is why we call this a servant song. Behold my servant whom I uphold my chosen in whom my soul delights. Is there any American who likes the word servant? Not many, unless that means you're rich and you have servants. Oh, to live in Downton Abbey. But being a servant is another matter entirely. Sounds like someone in a low position, a vulnerable position without many rights or freedoms. But this is many pass- one of many passages in Scripture where servant is a good thing. A complimentary title. It's even celebrated by God. In fact, the very topic of a faithful servant sends our God into song. Servant song. And if it's not literally musical, it's at least a joyous poem. And we Americans, we can understand this theme if we think about it. Unfortunately, I've had a conversations with a few of you recently where you've told me of hiring problems at work, personnel problems, people take the job, but then they don't show, or they call out frequently, or they fail a drug test, or they're just incompetent. And every once in a while, I actually hear from some of you about outright criminal behavior at work. Which reminds me of what I heard when I was a kid. I would hear adults say, 
it's just hard to find good help these days. We can understand, and God doesn't need help, let alone good help. But he does value his servants. A servant of God is a person who actually trusts God and his intentions. And sometimes that's hard to trust God and his intentions. And he will carry out the tasks, the duties assigned to him by the Lord. Even if it's hard. Even if it's dangerous. Even if it's unpopular. God rejoices in such a servant. Take Moses. Moses was not a perfect man. But he was arguably the most important and faithful man in the Old Testament. He was given what high title? Servant. God, God's servant. And the servant that Isaiah describes is celebrated by God, upheld by God, we're told, chosen by God. God's soul, we're told, delights in him. And God places his spirit upon the servant. But what's his job? What's his duty? What's his task? This servant. No biggie. Just to bring forth justice to the nations. Verse 1. Just to establish justice in the earth. Verse 4. Can one servant do that? That takes us to our next theme. Justice. So we looked at servant. We're going to look at justice now and we'll end with covenant. Justice. Look at verses 3 and 4 again. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands. Wait for his law. You know, I learned something preparing for this sermon. The word here for justice, I didn't realize this, but in Exodus, the same word is used to refer to How to build the tabernacle. That is the design for the tabernacle. That tent where God will meet with his people and the curtain and the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant. Remember that? Build this according to this pattern, this blueprint, this word for justice is used there. Justice is like a blueprint. Now, if you're a parent, you can understand this. If you have multiple kids, and actually, if you just have pets, you can understand this. You set rules, you say, all right, for us all to get along, you sleep over there and you stay out of their stuff and let's all help one another. And if people do these things, we have justice, a blueprint for the way things will work, should work. Now, we're still waiting for full justice on earth, as you know, and this will come in the future at the second coming Of this servant, Jesus. But notice that's not what was talked about in Matthew. When Matthew, the the movie I started with, in the middle of it, when he quoted Isaiah, he was talking about Jesus' first coming. Justice there. Huh. That's why he said, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, smoldering wick he will not quench. He was talking about Jesus' first coming, the things he was doing then 
that had something to do with justice. No aggression. No rallies. No self-promotion. That's not a winning formula if one inspires to a public position. And recognize public position is what you need if your goal is justice, let alone global justice. You need supporters. You need backers. You need connections. And outside of a stable democracy, you probably need people who will fight. Wouldn't hurt if they knew how to scheme too. Use leverage. Consider Absalom. Remember Absalom from the Old Testament? How did he rise to power? David's son. We're told this from 2 Samuel 15. Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. A posse. Now that takes planning. That takes recruiting. That takes rallying these men. And then we're told what this clever Absalom would do. He would rise early, go to the gate, the place in the city where legal disputes were heard. And on their way in, Absalom would say, hey, where are you from? What's your name? What tribe? And they'd lay out their problems to Absalom. And Absalom would say, oh, that's terrible. I can't believe the king doesn't care about you and this injustice. You see, if I were judge in the land, I'd help you. You'd get justice. We're even told that whenever a man would come to pay homage to Absalom, Absalom would hold out his hand and take a hold of him and kiss him. And to complete his plan, one day Absalom would find it necessary, no doubt, to raise his voice in the streets and yell something like, Now we go. Time to fight. Time for aggression. Time for rebellion. And all this would not be needed by the servant of the Lord, said Isaiah. He wouldn't need these tricks or demagoguery or violence. No brutal grasping. No destructive swagger. In fact, it goes even further than that. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench. These are such tender images of those who are weak. Those who are broken. You know, a smoldering wick is, think of a candle whose light is so dim and it's almost extinguished. An image of someone who is nearly out of life and out of hope. And Jesus Brings both life and hope. Please note that a bruised reed and a smoldering wick, they describe, they describe types of people who can't help you in your rise to power. You need strong men and connected elite. You need strength. You can't spend your time attending to the weak. The servant of the Lord would somehow. Think of the people Jesus healed, the woman hunched over, another woman who was bleeding for years, lepers, 
Here's what Matthew is teaching us by quoting Isaiah 42. Often those who promise justice, think about this. Often those who promise justice rise to power through unjust means. Sure, they promise justice, but let's be real. They have to break a few eggs along the way. Absalom did. Isn't it remarkable that in Jesus' rise to prominence, his rise to power, if you will, not one person died. John the Baptist, that was a different thing. He got beheaded, as you know. And we have disciples who will say, let's go to Jerusalem and die with you. Eager, zealous, somewhat misinformed or not understanding everything. And Jesus protects them. Back during his arrest, Jesus says, let them go. No one will die. Although he prophesies, Jesus warns them of the persecution and martyrdom that is coming and people like Peter will die. They will be martyrs, but who's the first martyr? Jesus. The servant of the Lord. Can I add one more thing here in our adult ed class on missiology, which we'll have here in the sanctuary after the sermon, after the service here. We've talked about the history of missions. And we've talked about some of the barbarian tribes, including the awful, violent, horrible Vikings who loved to kill everyone, it seemed. They loved to burn churches, monasteries. But they took some captives, made slaves out of them, women who would be their wives. And it took time. But slowly these wives, these slaves, shared their faith, lived out their faith in horrible circumstance. And slowly the Vikings were changed. Same for the Anglo-Saxons. Violent peoples slowly changed by Jesus. That really is part of the story of Northern and Western Europe. You think of justice being something that Jesus brings in his second coming, and that is true. But his rise to fame was just. No eggs were broken. And also, the ministry carried out in his name has often made this world a more just place, like we've seen with the Vikings. Let's go to third and our last topic, covenant. Verse 6 is remarkable, mysterious, profound. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. And listen to the word covenant. I will give you as a covenant for the people. I will give you as a covenant for the people. 
All right, Presbyterians love talking about covenants. Let's do it. What's a covenant? A covenant is sort of like a contract, but more serious. A contract is used for the exchange of goods, services, labor, and contracts can be quite useful. My wife and I signed a contract when we bought our home. But I wouldn't say we entered a covenant with the seller of the home nor with the bank. The house purchase involved a contract, not a covenant. But my wife and I are in a covenant with each other. The covenant of marriage. Now I said a covenant is more serious than a contract, and it is. You might know these words. To love and to cherish, for richer or for poorer, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health. And here's the climax. Till death do us part. I'm glad I didn't have to promise that to Wells Fargo. Now those are solemn vows indeed. Made at the wedding ceremony before God, before family, before church, even before the civil government. Weighty. And covenants like this often have a till death do us part aspect. Because of the seriousness of this, covenants often have a lasting token or symbol. My wife and I exchanged wedding rings. And in biblical times, some covenants had a symbol like the raising of a permanent stone memorial. That this is a witness of the vows made in a covenant. Now that word witness is a bit ominous. Suggesting that someone might not keep their vows or forget them. And a witness is a serious reminder of what you promised. And if a covenant is broken, there are consequences and sometimes severe. The most serious covenants in the Bible have the presence of blood as a symbol. Now think about how perfect the symbol of blood is. It symbolizes a lifelong commitment, a lifetime blood um, bond until death. But beyond that, blood also symbolizes the punishment, the, the consequences, even capital punishment. If the solemn vows are broken. Some covenants are like that. One amazing example is in Exodus when God makes a covenant with Israel. And the people promise their vows and then they are sprinkled with blood. But all this seriousness actually is related to the beauty of what a covenant is supposed to offer. A deep relationship. A special committed relationship through thick and thin for life. Someone you hopefully can rely on. I know there is immense pain here when covenants are broken. A covenant is the deepest voluntary relationship. A covenant creates great incentive for two parties to work it out. Being there for one another, even forgiving one another. As you have that special bond, as you carry out your vows Remember that wedding vow to, to love and to cherish. Be 
We really are covenantally committed to each other for their well-being, love, cherish each other, forgiveness. Maybe that's why covenants are often associated with a meal, sharing food and drink, table fellowship. This is great. It's a sign of partnership and joy between the covenantal partners. They sit down and have a meal together. And their joy might even spill over to other loved ones at the meal as in a wedding reception. All right. Now, here's the amazing thing. God made covenants with people. He didn't have to. He didn't need something from any human. He didn't need help and agreement in a covenant. He didn't have to make any special promises like he did. And I encourage you to read chapter 7 of our Westminster Confession of Faith on this topic. But out of his own freedom, grace, and love, he entered into covenants with Noah, Abraham, Israel, through Moses, as well as David. And so now we can finally appreciate how amazingly strange this verse is. Listen to it again. I will give you as a covenant for the people. Now, we just said a moment ago that God made covenants with Noah, with Abraham, with David, with. That makes sense to us, as amazing as that is. But this verse says that the servant, Jesus, will be given as a covenant. A servant, a person, a human, as a covenant himself, personally. And I really do struggle to find the right words to explain exactly what this means. But I can give you a picture. And that's this, the communion table. This is where Jesus announced the new covenant. All right, so what do we learn about covenants? Covenant meal. Fellowship. Eating together. And that's what this is. And then Jesus says what the food is. What the drink is. And he says, this is my body. This is my blood. Personal. It's as if he himself is being given as a covenant. He's even the food. We talked about covenant blood. Remember that had dual significance. Blood meaning for life. For death. The duration. But also it meant very weighty covenants. Punishment. A capital punishment for covenant breakers. And Jesus says, this is my blood of the new covenant. Symbolizing that commitment to the death, lifelong, and also hinting at the punishment for those who have broken, broken covenants, like Israel, like us. And covenant forgiveness. Remember, covenant is so great because you're in a tight relationship, a committed relationship with someone who's joyfully stuck with you, we hope. And you have to hammer it out. You have to work it out and look out for each other's interest. 
And that might even mean forgiving one another. And Jesus announces it's not just a meal. This is the blood of the new covenant, the covenant of forgiveness. The one thing he highlights there. Forgiveness. He himself will be given as a covenant. Think about this as we end with those, as we turn to the meal, those three things. Servant, justice, covenant. I won't go through all three again, but they all have something to do with this meal. But it's that last one we're focusing on, covenant. He announces the new covenant. With all of that fulfilled. Let us turn to the meal. Ask the Lord to be with us. Will the elders please come forward? And as they're walking forward here, will you pray with me? Let's prepare our hearts for all that this meal means. This covenantal meal. Father. We're still trying to understand what it means, not only that you stoop down to make a covenant with us when you don't have to, but secondly, that you yourself, Jesus, are given as a covenant. Wow. Lord, we uh, joyfully and solemnly receive this. Amen.